The following audio message is from Neighborhood Church in Overland Park, Kansas. At Neighborhood Church, we seek to be a community that loves God and our neighbors together. If you would like to learn more about Neighborhood Church, please go to www.neighborhoodchurchop.com. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Oh, it is a good week. It is a good week. Hey, I just wanted to start this morning and uh, just a huge thank you to those of you who came out on the workday for the workday yesterday. Uh, we had about uh, 10 men from Neighborhood Church. Uh, Maria was there as well. Uh, that's right. That's right. River stopped by for a bit too. Um, but, uh, you know, we had about 10 men from Neighborhood Church and another 20 from two different churches here in the Kansas City area that kind of heard about our need as we're kind of re, redoing the church. And those two churches are the Grove Church and River Park Church. And let me tell you, they showed up in full force. They showed up 30 minutes before the work day, and every one of them had this white truck with about a 1,000 tools in it that I had no idea what they did. And I'm serious, they, they, like, they just went to all their stations, and they just dominated inside. It was so cool, so cool. So uh, snoop around a bit today. I mean, there have been things that have changed in neighborhood church. You can the, probably one of the most prominent. The kitchen cabinets uh, are are partly installed. We got to put the drawers in there, but it's such a huge help, and it was such an encouragement to have brothers in Christ come here and bless us. So I just want to thank them. I know they're not here, but um, I know that they uh, they served us so well. And thank you for coming uh, and helping us on our workday, uh, men and women who came. Well, you know, I think two weeks ago I shared that my brother and I were terrible snoopers, right? We we're terrible snoopers. And I thought about a Christmas uh, a while ago when I was a kid. I remember, though, uh, my dad disagrees with me on this one. My dad disagrees. But uh, our parents got us a gift. You know, you got those gifts that you recall were so epic and awesome and you loved them. And it kind of was a highlight of the year for you as a kid. And a, uh, our parents got us a ping pong table one year. I think I was only like six or seven years old, right? Um, and it was an epic gift. It was awesome. We, we set it up downstairs right away. We were playing ping pong for hours that Christmas morning. But I want to share something else with you about me and my brother. Apparently, we were terribly bad snoopers because this ping pong table was obviously just like the ping pong tables you get now in these gigantic boxes. And my dad tells me that this box stayed in the garage for about three months before Christmas, two to three months, he said, and it was just there on the side of the garage, and we didn't even notice it. It was just there hanging out the whole time, and we were so excited. We had no idea we got a ping pong table for Christmas, and of course, uh, you know, <laughs> to my shame, uh, it is true. I had no idea I was getting a ping pong table that Christmas, but I, I want to encourage you um, that as we dive into our message today, uh, don't miss the message of Christmas. Don't walk by it quickly. Don't, don't rush through it. Soak in it today. Last week, Dave spoke uh, from the prophet Malachi mostly. A prophet from the Lord who told the people of God that though they had given their hearts over to idols and to their earthly kings, that he would remember, God would remember his people and deliver them from, his, from their sins. He promised that at the end of Malachi, that those who trust in the Son of Righteousness will leap like calves that are released from their confining stalls. 
As we begin our Christmas message this morning, we're going to jump right into the beginning of Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story. And at this point, Mary had been told by the angel Gabriel that she would bear a son and his name would be Emmanuel, God with us. Joseph, after some angelic intervention, trusted that Mary was carrying a child in her womb that was divinely placed there. During her pregnancy, Mary went to visit her much older cousin Elizabeth, who was also miraculously pregnant, given that she was old and barren, and her husband Zechariah was already old as well. Zechariah and Elizabeth's son was named John, and we know him as John the Baptist eventually. He would be the one calling out in the desert in the power of the prophet Elijah to prepare the way for Jesus, telling the people to repent and trust in the Lord, and the Lord would surely act mightily to keep his promise to wipe away their sin. While Mary visited her cousin, they both were rejoicing together, thanking God for showing them favor. And Zechariah, after momentary doubt, when John was born, he prophesied and praised the Lord for his son. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 76, Zechariah says this about John and the future coming Christ. He says, And you, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Now, just a few months after Jesus' human herald was born, we read the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and the hope of our salvation. Let's start reading this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So this is our passage for this morning, the birth of Jesus. And we start with someone who's not Jesus. We start with a man named Caesar Augustus, how you would say it in the Latin, Augustus, coming from Latin augere, meaning to increase. And Augustus means, I'm going to say Augustus, Augustus means majestic or holy. And he was actually given this title by the Roman Senate. It was actually voted that his name become Augustus. This matches his personality, persona. He was arrogant. It is said, in his own words, that he built, or excuse me, that built in brick he found Rome, and he left it in marble. Very arrogant. Very prideful of his accomplishments. Continuing on, he says, or excuse me, this, it was, it was, uh, Back in the day in Rome, he was the first emperor to encourage a cult to deify his name and his reign. An inscription was discovered in an Italian province dated 9 BC. And it says that Augustus, 
as a god, his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. And there's another inscription which actually lies in the British Museum today. And this is the description of Caesar Augustus. Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father Zeus and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good in its prime. There are fond hopes for the future and goodwill during the present, which fills all men, so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Caesar Augustus, though he claims this, he was a burden to the people. His tyrannical rule covered most of the vast expanse of the known world at the time. And unlike this twisted description says, the world was not blooming under his lordship. It was not in harmony. And things like hunger and the games in the Colosseum, which were wicked, kept the people under the emperor's control, especially in Rome. And he was in no way ready to give that manipulation up or his power. War and strife surrounded the Roman Empire everywhere it called its empire because it dealt so harshly with the people it conquered. Rebellion was rampant. There was no peace, and there was no tranquil existence under Roman rule. Caesar Augustus was a tyrant, like most of the rulers in Rome from Julius, Julius Caesar and beyond. And Augustus claimed to be a god and worthy of worship and songs from the people. His claim was not unlike all other tyrants throughout history before him. There were kings of Babylon. There were kings of Greece and Egypt and even Israel who claimed that the throne of this world belonged to them. That the throne of our hearts that you and I recognize lies solely with our creator and father God. This throne belongs to some human king. All these delusional dictators, they claim this right to rule the people of the world through their aggression, through their military conquest through the destruction, through manipulation and riches piled up beyond comprehension. They say, look at my qualifications. Look at my military power, my wealth. I am truly the God of this world. And people out of fear, pain, delusion maybe, would worship them as their God. But Jesus... The one whose authority will be final and whose kingdom will never truly end. His kingdom origins glisten in stark contrast against the imperialistic pursuits of Caesar and all other kings. Jesus does not burst into the world like a ruling leader or an epic hero or like an emperor might do so. God shatters worldly expectations that the Savior would be just like a Caesar, just like Nebuchadnezzar, or any other political leader. Praise the Lord! He comes lowly, 
lying in a feeding trough with soiled straw stuck to his legs and head. He comes to us humble, displaying this comforting truth that the lost don't need to seek God this Christmas because God came down to seek and save the lost. Our point number one is that while men seek to subdue the world, God seeks to save it. While men seek to subdue the world this Christmas, God seeks to save it. Unlike all the worldly tyrants and the Jewish leaders who thought that the Messiah would save them from their political turmoil, God had a much greater and broader rescue plan. His plan took up not only the Roman Empire, but every empire ever in existence, including the first sinful empire all the way back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve decided they could live in God's world and make up the commandments and interpret them how they would like to, becoming the lords of their own lives, thus began the first of many tyrannies to come in all of humanity and every one of our despotic hearts. As we look at the baby Jesus in the manger, we must not let ourselves think that because of his lowly countenance and lowly beginning on earth as a human, that he does not demand our utmost praise and personal discipleship. On the contrary, when we see how much more he relates to us, we must be drawn to deep discipleship and deep repentance. Mark 8, 34 through 37 is Jesus' words as he grows up and calls the lost sheep to himself. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? See, we are all tyrants at one point. And sometimes we go back and forth of our own personal lives. We think we have control. We want the control. Just like Caesar Augustus tries to dominate this world, we try to dominate ourselves, and we, we want control of our life. We want to decide what's right and wrong and what's best for our, ourselves. But Jesus, instead of allowing us to rule our own hearts and lives, which leads us to misery, to depression, and purposelessness, and shame, and anger and sexual immorality and contempt for other people and ultimately the eternal judgment of God, Jesus doesn't let us stay there. He comes down to earth to free us from the burden of our sinful tyranny. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I was watching my niece and nephews at uh, Tomahawk Ridge Pool. When I was little, I called it the Tonkahonka Ridge Pool, but Tomahawk Ridge Pool at one point. And this was kind of like one of those first times that I'd watched my niece and nephew alone. And, uh, you know, I was sitting on one of the beach cha- or beach uh, lawn chairs, you know, and uh, they were out in the pool. I remember looking up and seeing them kind of by the diving boards, then kind of over by the, you know, walk-in pool. And I was like, great, they're there. And th- this was a while ago. This wasn't now. I mean, they're older. 
But um, you know, at one point I looked up and I was like, where is my niece? <laughs> oh my goodness, I don't know where she is. She is gone. I don't see her. I, I couldn't find her anywhere. So I, I, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not even a parent. This is not my child, right? My sister would have forgiven me, I'm sure. But she has more children. But this is not my child, right? And I just got that adrenaline rush. Like, oh my goodness, I have to find this child. You see where I'm going with this? This is God. I found them. I found her, <laughs> by the way. But this is God that he has come to seek and save us because he knows we are lost. He knows that we've gone our own way, that we've wandered off. We've followed ourselves. We've followed our own tyrannical hearts. But this is the joyful message from God to you and me today, that we have been sought after to be God's own possession And we have been pursued by a compassionate, relational God, one who sees us in our brokenness, and he understands that we don't need a Caesar Augustus in his halls of marble, but we need a best friend who will get down into the muck which we are in and save us. Jesus Christ, born in the corner with the animal dung and the leftovers fed to the animals and the goats the day before, This is testament to that truth. That while we seek to subdue our own life and to bring it under our control, God seeks to save us through Jesus. Let's keep reading in our story this morning. Verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was one of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Bethlehem lies some 70 miles south of Nazareth. It's a climb in elevation, just under 1,000 feet. The home of Joseph and Mary was in Nazareth, so that's where they had to go. This is not the easiest of journeys. (laughs) And despite what many drawings and pictures depict, it is most unlikely that Mary was on a donkey. Animals for traveling were a sign of great wealth and position in Jewish culture, and Mary and Joseph had neither of those things. She walked. She stumbled had to take deep breaths and stop frequently. This journey of 70 miles on foot to Bethlehem would be the last thing any woman nine months pregnant would want to do, I'm sure. I I barely want to get off the couch and and get the remote to change the TV, right? She walked 70 miles, nine months pregnant. Joseph, it is said in Matthew, was an honorable man. So I'm sure he did what he could to help his wife and was patient with her. But it's interesting to point out that Joseph and Mary were not married at this point. And culturally for them, traveling together would have been very odd, to say the least. One commentary said this, that the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem leaves Mary and Joseph, an unmarried and pregnant couple, traveling together in a Jewish setting, 
and a shocking social liaison. One of the reasons for this traveling together could be that Mary needed support as the baby was almost due. And there may have been a short list among her friends and family who would have been obliged obliged to help her, seeing as she was pregnant before the marriage. Scripture is clear. Though they traveled together, Joseph knew her not until after Jesus was born. There was nothing unchaste about this relationship before marriage. Rather, they both had divine intervention leading them together as God willed Christmas to unfold. When they arrived in Bethlehem, they found no room for them at the inn. Most likely just a home in Bethlehem is what this word inn refers to, where they were seeking to stay in a spare room. But nothing could be found. They were told they could stay over in a corner where the animal shelter was in a home. At the time, a lot of animals were kept on the first floors of homes, and people lived on the second floor or in a walled-off room of the first floor. Regardless of what the exact imagery is for Christmas and for Jesus' birth, don't miss the joyful thought today. Our point number two. Let's bask in the beauty of Christmas, the lowliness of Christ's birth. See, it was, it was smelly. It was disgusting. The air was thick with animal deposits. Uh, over Thanksgiving break, uh, we went, my family and I went to the Chateau Milk Farm and toured the, uh, the stalls where they milk the cows and uh, got to pet the baby calves, which was my favorite part. I love cows. They're actually my favorite animal. Um, they uh, bring us all things good while they're alive and when they die. So, uh, I love them all around. They're all around a wonderful animal. But but let me tell you, I mean, we went to this part where the, uh, the cows line up to be milked uh, three times a day, and it reeked where they lived. And it was disgusting at some points. And you, didn't, you were not supposed to stand too close to the stalls. They called it the splash zone. So it smelled. It smelled bad. Where animals live, that smell abounds. <laughs> And this was the environment that Jesus chose to be born in. You see, the hay that he was born in may have been wet. It may have been trampled down by human or hoof traffic. Most likely, there was very poor light, if much at all. All that the first century modern living could afford would not have been at Jesus' birth. From the very moment that Jesus was a part of any conversation here on earth, at the start of his life, when Joseph and Mary were going from house to house, saying they were pregnant with child. Jesus, along with his parents, was rejected. And he was birthed in humility. And God chose this setting for a specific reason. And that reason is laid out clearly in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus was born in a foot of sheep manure, rejected by men from the start, pushed aside on the night of his birth so he could tell us that he loves us. Our Savior stepped down into darkness and into the sin and chaos in our lives 
onto our level because he wanted to say, I care for you. I love you. I want to be with you. I want to save you from this. And the king of heaven, sitting next to God the Father, radiating light from his face, where angels carry out his will without pause, he got down on one knee to talk to his children, to comfort us, to bring us into his arms as his lost sheep, to bring him to himself. This brings us into our last point this morning, which is all about application today. The charge I want to give you is to give up your throne to Jesus this Christmas. Give up your throne to Jesus this Christmas. We're just like Caesar Augustus. We may not have the power (laughs) that he had or the military might. We might not have the wealth, the prestige. But we have the same arrogance. And the same tyranny is in our hearts, every single one of us. To control our lives, to subdue it, to follow things that we think are better than what God has for us. But Jesus, when he rests on your throne, will give you joy and peace and hope and light. Today, this very moment, this could be the first time you have been challenged to stop living life for yourself and give your life to Christ. You may feel the pull from the Spirit to give up the authority you have had that has led you down the path of iniquity, of death, and decay. I want you to hear me right now. I believe you should give up this authority in your life because there is no other king, whether in this world or in your own wise, who deserves the throne of your life. The world in its ways will promise to give so much. They'll promise to bring peace, to bring happiness. But all it will do is leave you empty. And when you think about trusting in yourself as your salvation, in your own beliefs, in your own truth, consider who Jesus is, who he claims to be, what he has done for you. He is called Mighty Counselor. Wisdom and all knowledge are his. Who else could go up against his understanding? And what has he done for you and I? He has seen our lostness. He's pursued us in coming to this earth to not only show us how to live, but becoming death for us on the cross. Becoming sin as he was held up on the cross. C.S. Lewis beautifully said, Jesus was so full of life that when he wished to die, he had to borrow death from others. Praise Jesus, that's what he does for you and me. He takes my death, he takes my unrighteousness, and in its place he gives me and all those who trust in him True eternal life. He gives us life everlasting and righteousness and adoptions as sons and daughters of our Father. If you want this today, please come talk to me or Dave after the message. We'd love to talk to you about this. Maybe this isn't the first time you've been challenged to let Christ sit on the throne of your life. And maybe you're sitting here a Christian. What call do you feel on your life as you gaze in wonder at the Christ child? 
Do you need to throw off the shackles of bitterness and ingratitude? Do you need to love your spouse and live a marriage of true faithfulness? Do you need to forgive someone in your past or in your present so that you can display the forgiveness God has freely given you? What brings you unsettled feelings or worry or stress? For you, hear the joy of Christmas. Jesus is with you. Emmanuel has come down to walk with you in this life. His birth as a human being is the closest way he could possibly communicate his desire to draw near to us. Will you let him draw near to you this Christmas? For when you let his love into your heart, when you let his heavenly kingship reign in your hearts, he will lead you to abundant life. He will lead you to joy through this world's trials and sufferings. He will start to transform your marriages and your friendships. He will lead you into true satisfaction this Christmas because when you prepare him room, he will make the room absolutely beautiful and pleasing to behold. When you let him sit on the throne of your life, his glorious kingdom of truth, wisdom, and love begins to shine forth. This Christmas, our King comes to us as our own, lowly and dirty, not born in halls of marble and glorious riches. He does this to say that he loves us and he is pursuing us, getting down to our level. May we be grateful for the humility of Jesus, the humility that swaddled him in the manger the humility which was laid bare on the cross as we hung as he hung naked on a tree for our sake may we rejoice that he came to bring us actual peace actual joy actual love because he's forgiven us of our sins and shown us the way of truth and life this christmas let every heart prepare him room because he is worthy of all we have to bring, and infinitely more. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and praise you. Thank you for the message of Christmas. Thank you for coming to this earth to say that you love us, you want to walk with us. Thank you for not being like a Caesar Augustus or a leader who promises peace but delivers war, a leader who promises joy and happiness and life under their rule but brings death and suffering. Thank you for freeing us from this. Thank you for coming down in humility. Thank you for saving us from our sins and living a life that we could exemplify, that we can learn from, and that we can trust as our true life. Thank you, God. We love you and praise you. Amen.